when they hit their skills limits, they become stressed. So they have been great all along. They've been promoted into management positions. And then at some point they hit a wall and the wall is hard and they uh, start to face challenge and criticism from the people that they're working with. Uh, And that often comes from just a gap in their skill set. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. Hi, welcome back to the Inspire Podcast. Hope you're enjoying season two as much as I'm enjoying the interviews I've had. And today I've got another great interview. It's with Mary Lagakis Engel, no relation. Uh, Mary is the founder of The Management Coach. She is a speaker, she's a coach, she's a consultant, she's been an executive. And she's really in the business of teaching effective management. So she uh, comes on the podcast today to talk about how you can adapt your style based on your audience to really move and reach them while still being authentic. It's really practical stuff. I have her given me a little spontaneous coaching session, and I know you'll get a lot out of our conversation. So here we go. Mary is the CEO of eSuite.com and the management coach. And we were, uh, <laughs> we were bantering around it. I said, what's your tagline? And I think we settled on that you are the management whisperer. Is that, does that capture it? Yeah, I think we can, I think we can go with that. <laughs> so what is a management whisperer? Why I kind of resonated with that is because I've spent most of my career just working with managers in a professional services environment and I've gotten to know them and I've gotten to understand at very nuanced levels some of the challenges and opportunities that they face. And for some reason, you know, it might sound a little odd, but the universe seems to have chosen me to just deliver <laughs> messages to these managers. <laughs> you bring uh, the I truth to them that they need to Yeah, hear. I just bring the truth. I, I think that's something that um, a lot of my clients and managers that I've worked with have have uh really valued is that I really do just some some people call it brutally honest. You said, you know, over the you know, 15 plus years you've been doing this, you've come to see some in the broad common challenges that people in management face. What would be a couple of those that you see over and over? Well, the one probably most pronounced is time. Uh, people are feeling the crunch, they're feeling the pressure of time and everything is urgent. Uh, and many people don't really understand the concept of time management. Uh, and so they struggle. They feel overwhelmed. They feel stressed. And then we have, of course, the mental health challenges that go along with that, um, which is just starting to get its uh, due consideration in most organizations. I think we're doing a great job here in Canada. Uh, the U.S. Uh, is starting to catch up, but not really quite as in tune with um, the level of stress that time creates for managers. Uh, The other thing that I notice managers experiencing is when they hit their skills limits, they become stressed. 
So they have been great all along. They've been promoted into management positions. And then at some point they hit a wall and the wall is hard and they uh, start to face challenge and criticism from the people that they're working with. Uh, and that often comes from just a gap in their skill set, hmm. something they haven't developed yet, something they haven't learned how to do. And so I often tell them, listen, you've hit a wall, so you got to learn how to climb or <laughs> dig like or navigate. You got to find yourself, find your way around that wall. Hmm. Um, and that's about skills, developing those skills. And you also, I imagine from what we're going to talk about today around you know, situational management, you've also identified some common challenges around communication and, and style. Can you talk a bit about that and what you see in managers? Yeah, uh, communication comes in many forms, as we all know. And I think what happens with managers and communication is they they tend to rely on the communication styles that are most natural to them. And uh, they rely very heavily on their personality. And that's not always going to get them the best outcome. In many situations, it will get them the best outcome. And that's how they got to where they are. And in other situations, they struggle to figure out how come they can't influence or enforce the point that they're trying to get across. And often it comes down to the style that they're using uh, and and uh, maybe a, a lack of flexibility or a sense of rigidity that they maybe can only use one or two styles where there might be some other options available to them. Yeah, and I think further to that point, in the world that we live in now, you know, and we at the Humphrey Group are doing a lot more around self-awareness and how you communicate, why you communicate. There's this thought that being authentic just means living in that one style that you're most comfortable with. When really, uh, it sounds like what you're saying is it is authentic to be able to flex into these different styles. Is that right? Absolutely. I think authenticity to me is um, is a very interesting term. I've, I've done a, bun- a bunch of research, read a number of biographies of legendary leaders like uh, Gandhi and Mandela and Steve Jobs and Walt Disney. And um, they certainly are legendary uh, in the sense that they are all authentic. Uh, but the reality is when you look at all of them, they all copied someone. Right. Ironically. It's true. <laughs> and they emulated others. You know, Mandela copied Gandhi and <laughs> Steve Jobs copied his dad and Jeff Bezos of Amazon copied uh Walmart uh, and Sam Walton. And so authenticity is really a point of figuring out what is it that you have not yet developed? Uh, Figure out how to copy the people that you admire who do it. Integrate that with your own values and interests and passions. And then you have something authentic. And so if you can learn the different styles and learn to become flexible and still implement those with your own values and passions and your own spin, then you will certainly continue to be seen as authentic. You'll just also be seen as authentically flexible. Interesting. And that, I guess, ties to the what you teach, which you, you describe as situational management. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So tell me a bit about how, how would you define situational management and what are the styles that you have you know, named within it? Sure. Uh, So situational management is a theory that was developed in the late 60s by uh, Dr. Bill Redden. Uh, He has since passed away, uh, and it is the original situational management model 
the one on which situational leadership is based. Um, they did a great job expanding on the model with situational leadership. But at the core of the model is this idea that there are four basic styles of management and communication, and all four styles are effective when used at the right time, when used in the right situation. And it's a manager's job to learn all four styles and to develop the maturity and the skills to know when to use them in, in order to get the best outcome. And so the, the four styles, uh, there's four basic styles, and when applied in the right situation, they get four effective labels. And when applied in the wrong situation, you get labeled these not so nice uh, character traits. <laughs> um, but it, it's actually the same behavior applied in different situations makes you either perceived as effective or ineffective. So, and it's based on relationship and task orientation. So a high relationship manager is one that we would call a developer. And they're focused on how the other person thinks and feels and less so on themselves. The other person's opinion matters. My opinion doesn't, and therefore I'm in a developer space. The relationship matters more than the task. And that's what we would call a developer. They're very nurturing. They're very encouraging. They're very positive. And when used at the right time, that can be very uplifting, very empowering. And when used at the wrong time, it can, we call it a missionary, and it's a very um, kind of a passive state when somebody just needs you to make a decision or somebody just needs you to move on something or something needs to move more quickly. And missionary managers tend to drag their heels, tend to worry too much about what people feel and think and not enough about the task. Okay, so style one is the developer in the ideal world, but if it, if it goes south, it becomes a missionary. What's style two? Style two is what we call the benevolent autocrat. And a benevolent autocrat says, my opinion matters and your opinion doesn't. This is kind of the command and, and control style. A bit of command and control. My, my way goes. And this can be a very effective style in certain situations. Um, you know, you've got somebody who's new to the job and they don't know exactly how to do something or what to do next and you're directing them. Uh, it could be something that no, somebody that knows less about a certain subject than you do and they are seeking direction and you are providing direction. Uh, it could be an urgent situation where time is of the essence. You know what needs to get done. And so you are delegating work and saying, here's exactly how I need you to do this. And you're saying it unemotionally. So tone plays a big role in the difference between a benevolent autocrat, which is the effective style, and the autocrat, which is the hmm. less effective style. And so tone, interesting. So tone is what shapes the perception of where are you falling on this line. It can. It can also be situations. So you may have a highly skilled, very smart person that you're working with and you're trying to tell them exactly how to do something. And your maybe tone is totally fine, but they're looking at you going, do you think I was born yesterday? Right. Or they might, or I imagine I might, they might feel you're not empowering me. You know, you're giving me the accountability to run you know, this region or this project. And yet you're dictating to me what I should do. That's disempowering for some. Yep, Exactly. And what's the third style? Now, the third style is called collaborator. And that's where my opinion matters and your opinion matters. And we put, if we put our heads together, we're going to come up with a better solution. So this style is useful when the, uh, when the outcome is not really known or 
the decision is ambiguous and it's complex and you need multiple brains working on things to sort it out, or if you need a high degree of buy-in to get something moving. Collaborative style integrates. They bring in multiple perspectives. It's great for interdependent teams where people rely on each other. And sometimes you'll see a benevolent autocrat style used in teams where people do not uh, interact with each other. Whereas in teams where uh, people are cross-functionally interdependent, you want them to be working with each other. So the collaborator Mm. creates environments where people can speak to each other and call each other out, hold each other accountable, uh, create solutions together, create plans together. Uh, It's a very useful style. It's also the style that's probably most overused in in North American society today. Uh, It is uh, what we consider probably to be the source of most meeting fatigue. Really? (laughs) So the other side of the collaborator is the compromiser. Uses collaboration too much, calls too many meetings with all the wrong people, and doesn't seem to want to make a decision. They want to have lots of people involved in their decisions so that everybody else can be pointed the finger at potentially, or they try and satisfy everybody. And so they compromise. Hmm. I can see that. Yeah. And it, it is really interesting as we go through these styles that, you know, one person's <laughs> glorified leader is another person's nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> to work with and and you know it really I, I know we're going to get to this later but it just behooves anyone who wants to interact and manage and lead to understand who they're dealing with and what they're going to respond to well and i think it's changed over the decades i, I think back in the um in the industrial age we were heavily reliant on command and control mm-hmm. because we had manual workers who were um really process oriented and the leader really did no more than the, the average worker. And so command and control was kind of the, the style of the day. And then as we got into the 70s and 80s, the collaborator style was the um, ideal. Now we've got knowledge workers, we need to mm-hmm. leverage the knowledge workers. And now that we're um, you know in the new millennium, the developer style is really becoming the fad say we got to coach people, we got to empower them, we got to leverage their knowledge, we got to involve them. And so a lot of managers now are struggling to go from the collaborator command and control to the developer. Right. They're saying, I spent all these years becoming a collaborator. (laughs) And now you're telling me that's not going to cut it anymore. (laughs) That's right. And and it's also um, moving into the leadership roles as you become an executive, you, your opinion matters less. Yeah. As you lead your organization, your opinion matters less, and that's where the developer role comes in. Right. Okay, so what's role four? The fourth and final one is the administrator role. Doesn't sound quite as exciting. <laughs> it's not as exciting, but it's so, so, so important. Um, and a lot of people reject it because it is um, considered bureaucratic to some. But it's so utterly important, and it says, my opinion doesn't matter, and your opinion doesn't matter either. There's a rule, a regulation, a policy, a law, a procedure, something that has been defined that we are simply trying to follow. Hmm. And, uh, you know, this would be such an incredible style to use for all of those people who have meetings and start them late. 
An administrator starts a meeting on time and says, here's the agenda. We said we were going to start at nine o'clock. And oh, look, we're starting at nine o'clock. Right. Because your feelings and opinion don't matter. And my feelings and opinion don't matter. That's just the rule. Right. That's the ground rule. Good meetings start on time. Hmm. And what's the negative of this? The bureaucrat? Well, the negative, yeah, the negative is what we would call the deserter. The deserter. Hmm. Yeah, and it's a it's so based on how I just described it, it doesn't fully fully explain what it is. Um, the administrator is somebody who maintains ongoing processes and procedures. So they'll take a, an existing process and they will manage it very efficiently, very effectively, even if that process is broken. Hmm. They'll ride it to the bottom. <laughs> They'll ride it all the way. <laughs> and uh, a deserter is somebody who um, throws their hands up and gives up. They back off and they say, my opinion clearly doesn't matter. And I don't really care about your opinion. So I'm just going to shut down. And is that because they feel that the process is all that matters and, the, and, when the, and they lose faith in the process and therefore they give up? Well, sometimes where we see it is in a change situation. So if you're changing, if somebody comes forward and says, we need to change this process, a deserter is usually somebody who is kind of attached to the process and they're trying to get their voice heard and say, listen, this past precedent, look at all the data, it still works. And they, they're considered to be deserting the change. Ah. And so you, you often see it there. Um, it, it's also the one style that can be created and what do you mean by that? Autocrats will also will often create deserters. Hmm. Because they move people into the deserter because they feel that their opinion doesn't matter. Exactly. So a person who's a who's a deserter being told by an autocrat this is how you do things and going, your opinion doesn't matter because you're wrong. Right. Uh, and they're sitting there going, but clearly my opinion doesn't matter either because you're not listening. Right. Uh, they will just back off and close off and go hide. And so they, they're no longer a productive uh, member of your, of your team. So these four styles are, do you have, is there research done on, is there a, a distribution of where people sit in these? I mean, certainly you could run personality tests. And if you were to look at MBTI or FACET 5, for example, uh, I use the FACET 5 and the MBTI as my personality tests. Um, They certainly have distributions of where people's personalities lie. And you could draw connections. And there have been connections drawn between the management styles model and those personality types. So you could Mm -hmm. look at the distribution. Mm -hmm. I think that the key difference, though, is that situational management is a behavioral model. Hmm. It's not a personality. It's not a personality. So when you do a self-assessment, for example, on a managerial styles questionnaire, you could have a different answer every time because you're entering different situations and you're answering the questionnaire based on the situation you're in. Whereas a personality assessment will tend to be consistent over time. So when you introduce a client to these four and they recognize it, as I'm now hearing that these are not behaviors or personalities, but rather styles that you can flex into, what do you then have them do? Like, so for example, if I was a client, like, okay, this is great. We've got these four styles. Let's see the positive and negative of each. What do you then, what work would you have me do to be able to choose when and how to use these styles? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Usually the question I'll ask is, which is the style that you're not using? Interesting. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to tackle this. I'm going to get some free some free coaching here. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. All right. Okay, so we've right, got, which, which is the style that so you I'm definitely, are attending? The developer to? definitely resonates with me. So I'm and I'm certainly, you know, the call the collaborator, hopefully not the compromiser. <laughs> no, I would say the the fourth one is the one that I I use the least. Administrator. Yeah. The administrator, the administrator deserter. So so you're not using that one. And how do you know you're not using that one? What's what's your, what's your well, it was more the app. It was more how I could immediately see myself in the other three. You know, I'm, I'm personally very passionate about developing people. And then I would say collaboration. You know, I, I often talk in the company about how we need to tap into the bigger brain. We need to bring people together so we can surface the best ideas. The best ideas don't come from the people in charge. And then I do also finally recognize that sometimes I, I just have to make a decision. And so I'm willing to kind of say, we're going to move forward on this. Whereas I don't see, I don't see myself drawn to policies, uh, making rules. I do believe in opinions mattering. It's more the my attraction to the other three rather than my revulsion or, or distaste for the fourth that would, that let okay. me my answer. So where do you think the administrator style might be helpful to you? What kinds of processes or procedures are kind of fundamental to your organization? It is. It's true. I mean, for example, we've in the last several years, we've gone from an organization with very standard roles. You know, people either are just delivering training. I shouldn't say just, but in the sense of minimizing, but sense of that's the only thing they're doing or they're what we call the associate role, which is they learn how we not only deliver training, but also build business. And then we have people in our client services group. And and I would say that one area that it's taken me a while to realize how important it is, is role design and putting it on paper, you know, for people, what they're doing and why. And I, I've kind of like, well, why don't we just do it? And so I've seen, fortunately, we have great people in the company who have shown me how important it is that we continually try and articulate, try and define that with clarity for people. And I've seen how the organization responds very positively to that, as well as broader uh, processes that we've put in place. So it's definitely been a blind spot for me. Yeah, and I think, so there is an area where you could probably focus your administrator style a little further is to say, you know, effective organizations have a standard process for clarifying roles setting objectives and checking in on those objectives regularly throughout the year mm-hmm. for every every member of the team. And an administrator leader, a leader who's using the administrator style is going to stick somewhat resiliently to those methods because mm-hmm. they know it works. And so you put systems in place so that it's efficient and that people have the guideposts and then your job then as the administrators to make sure that people do it. Yeah, so I see, I see the value there and I see how, particularly as organizations grown, that style will, would become more or will become more important. So I articulate the ones that I gravitate towards. How would you help me understand whether or not I was, of course, I, I quote the more positive versions of each of the styles. How do I know <laughs> if and when, and I'm sure there are moments on all, that I've veered into the you know, the, uh, the dark side of all of these. Yeah, there's a couple of ways. We do have an assessment. So on esuite.com, there is a style self-assessment that you, you would complete and you would fill out the form and it would spit out 
how you perceive yourself, which more effective styles are you using, which less effective styles are you using, and it would spit out the degree to which you're effective. And then we might ask members of your team. Mm-hmm. We might go to them and say, you know, tell us what he's doing well and what he's uh, not doing so well. And I've done that a number of times with CEOs and executives and learned some very interesting things about how people perceive them. And that's the interesting thing about style is it's not it's not necessarily fact because people will perceive your style through the lens of their own personality. Hmm. Tell me more about that. Uh, well, it's an example where let's say an organization undergoes a change and they get a new CEO. And the last CEO was a very amiable person, very well-liked, very nurturing, very uh, lovely. And the reason they're getting a new CEO is because that last CEO was not hitting the targets that were set. And so you had a lovely person who was loved by all because of how he operated, uh, probably using a missionary style much of the time and therefore not getting the results. And then you bring in a new CEO who is using maybe more collaborator, benevolent autocrat styles because they're saying, yes, you all matter, but we also got to get some work done here. And while everybody that has been hired was hired by a CEO and an organization that preferred the amiable type. Hmm. Which is why they joined or stayed. (laughs) Yeah. This group is now conditioned in a certain way that when the new CEO comes in with a more benevolent autocrat style, they they immediately perceive it as an autocrat style Hmm. because it is so different. But the results get better. Interesting. So they're less happy, but the performance increases. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, for us, effectiveness is always defined by the outputs, Mm -hmm. resulting uh, outputs of the role. Hmm. And style is an input to that. Style is a factor in it. If that's the case, so then my next question is around how much of the burden should be on the manager to switch styles to hit what's going to resonate for people? And how much should they say, this is who I am and they need to react to me? My simple answer is that the burden is always on the manager. And Dr. Bill Redden had a great quote. He said, management of others is self-management. So it is incumbent on the manager to understand the demands being placed on them. And those demands come in multiple forms. So you've got people and their personalities and their baggage and their needs and their requirements. Uh, You've got the organization and its culture and the expected behaviors and norms of the organization. And then you've got the work itself. The work demands certain behaviors based on the processes and systems that you're using. Uh, So for example, the work of a creative director is very different from the work of a call center agent. Uh, One requires uh, process and procedure and scripts and um, and patience and... (laughs) (laughs) You know, all infinite of those patience. qualities, <laughs> infinite patience. And the other requires creativity and collaboration and ideation. Uh, and they're, they're two very different um, ways of operating. So they demand two very different styles. The call center agent would demand an administrator style. A creative director would demand a developer or a collaborator style. So, um, so it's incumbent on the manager to understand the situation understand the pressures being placed on them by those three different demands, and then be able to flex their style or not 
And we call not flexing the style resilience because people place demands on you. It doesn't always mean that that's the best demand to be placed. So you have to use your judgment to say, am I going to switch styles right now to suit what they want from me? Or am I going to stay resilient with the style that I'm using and, um, and demand a, a different outcome? Because sometimes, as you said, your style may be the one, you may be choosing a style, let's say the collaborator that people want. They want to be heard. They want to be participating. But you may have to recognize it sounds like this is not producing the right outcomes. We're not, you know, projects are taking too long. We're not able to make a decision. We're missing deadlines. And then you just say, look, I, you know, they may want the collaboration, but I need to switch to the autocrat, the benevolent autocrat. Is that, is that what you're uh, describing in terms of that need to be resilient? Yes, exactly. And it's very easy to do because you can simply explain it. Mm-hmm. I know you all want to be involved in this decision, but here are the reasons why I just need to make a call right now. Mm-hmm. This, uh, we're running out of time. Uh, we kind of already know the answer um, and we just need to get going on it. And that's hard because you're you're essentially you're not giving people what they want and they're going to apply pressure on you. I'm sure that could feel uncomfortable. Now, that said, there are many legendary leaders that uh, are incredibly rigid and and don't have the flexibility uh, or their board said, you need to hire a coach because you're too rigid. Hmm. And so I think about people like Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos. I was thinking of him. I mean, Jobs, for example, talk about benevolent autocrat. (laughs) There's not much benevolence (laughs) in it. It's more just like autocrat. (laughs) Yeah, in many situations he was, but he was forced to hire a coach to help him see how he sometimes just needed to listen to other people around him. Uh, And so he did that very well as well. When he found the people that he trusted and surrounded himself with a strong team, uh, he was open to them in a challenging sort of way, but he was able to find people to surround himself with that were pretty resilient and uh, that couldn't be shaken or... um, or pushed off of their right. uh, balance by him. Uh, and so for, for some leaders where the flexibility isn't as uh, readily available, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, it's important for them to choose their teams so that they have really, really smart people um, who are relatively resilient and can stand up to them and that they can trust to uh, get the job done well. Okay, so once once you know your preferred style, once you know your level of flexibility, once you know, as you've helped me, which styles you're least likely to flex into, what work do you then do with people once you have that level of self-awareness? Yeah, then it's practice. A lot of the conversations I have with leaders uh, revolve around situations. And so they come to me and they say, here's where I'm stuck. Here's the situation. And we basically go through and it's an ongoing conversation. Every situation they have, I say, well, you got four choices. So let's hmm. run through them. Which is the style that's going to get you the best outcome? And we basically role play that situation using all four styles. It becomes very obvious which one makes the hmm. most sense to use at that point. And do they feel, do you find that people are able to do that? Or is it a struggle to get into some styles? Yeah, some of them struggle. Um to get into some styles. I remember a, an executive that I was coaching a number of years ago who uh, he was absolutely a benevolent autocrat at his best and an autocrat <laughs> at his worst. And that was kind of the reason he was coaching right. with me. And I said, well, you're, you know, describe to me how you're 
communicating with the people that you're working with. And so he would describe it. And, and I said, okay, why don't we try asking some questions? So we role played <laughs> asking God questions <laughs> and, and, and I scratching my head, rubbing my eyes going, Oh my God, you're asking challenging questions. <laughs> like what, and like why did that, why did you fail at that project? <laughs> why, why are you doing it that way? Like, why would you come up with this? Like, why would you do it in that time frame? <laughs> And I'm going, well, no wonder they can't stand you. <laughs> and and he and he went silent on me. I remember this very distinctly. He went kind of silent on me. And I, I had to say, like, are you still there? <laughs> and he and he piped in and he said, Mary, I don't know how to do what you're asking me to do. Hmm. I've never done it before. And I was asking him simply to ask curious questions, hmm. to ask curious questions, say, tell me more and right. what would it look like? And when could we do it? And how could we do it? So he just and didn't have did the words to, to do it. Yeah. And he was just blindsided. Um, and so we had to role play it very hard and very clearly. And, uh, and our coaching program came to an end eventually, but, um, and this was the one thing that was holding him back from a more senior promotion. I mean, his leader loved him, but God help him. He did not have the fans and the rest of the organization to get him into a senior vice president hmm. role. They thought we'll have about to deal with these later, questions forever. It'll kill us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and about a year later, I got the news that he was promoted and we were all very excited. And, and I think what that example shows is that it wasn't that he didn't want to be in that other style. He simply didn't have the words. Like he'd never thought about how to ask in that way. He had this one style that had obviously served him well because he reached an executive role and he just hadn't had to develop it. But then he reached this point where that kind of uh, adherence to one style was holding him back. Exactly. So we shouldn't place judgments on people, you know, because I'm sure some of his peers said, this person has no interest in me. He's very aggressive. He's accusatory, but really it was a lack. It wasn't that. It was just an, an inability to even form those questions. Yeah. To summarize for people listening who either are managing people or managing upward or trying to influence, what would be the three things that you would have people do if they want to begin showing this kind of situational management? Okay. So the first thing is uh, become very situationally sensitive. And that means when you go into any situation, take a moment to really read the room. Understand what is being demanded of you at that moment and put yourself in a place where you can intentionally and deliberately choose a style that's going to work. So situationally sensitive is, I think, the first okay. thing. Um, the second is... Uh, do some work on self-awareness. So get a personality assessment done and get a styles self-assessment done and see how the two interact. Figure out, is there a style that I am more inclined to use easily? And are there styles that I am more inclined to reject or uh, avoid? And just get to learn what those are. And then the third is just pick one. Pick hmm. one style that you know you need to practice and find every opportunity to practice it. And bring that intention to it. Yeah, exactly. The other thing I'll add to that from the practice standpoint that 
stood out to me is that exercise you have your clients do of having the same conversation, but role playing all four styles. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating because it's it would let you see and experience the difference in how it feels in a safe space. Well, th- this is great. I've uh, I've learned a lot. I'm, I'm going to be kind of thinking of myself and which style I'm in you know, for my my meetings. And I'll try and practice some situational management. Beautiful. Mission accomplished then. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Mary, before we go, uh, final thing I want to ask you, you've mentioned on your website, there's a tool that you can go to to get an assessment of these styles. Uh, where do people go and, and is there a cost to this? Sure. So the software is called esuite.com and it's spelled e-suite, S-U-I-T-E.com. And uh, you can go there and create a free account and it's free forever for teams of up to 10 people. There's a number of number of tools in that suite, one of which is the style self-assessment. And so once you log in, you can click on styles and complete a self-assessment. And then you can learn how to use all of the other situational management tools that are in there uh, that complement and support the management styles model. Uh, it's free for up to 10 people. And then after mm. that, um, as you bring on more team members, there's a small charge. Uh, but we're happy to answer any questions anybody has about that. Yeah, it sounds like great value. And I think Anyone listening who's gotten something out of this today, as I have, should go log on and uh, take that profile. So thanks for sharing that. And we'll, uh, we'll also put in the show notes so that everyone knows where to go. And appreciate you coming on the Inspire Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mary and the very practical skills and tools she provided on how to manage in a way that will actually move your audience but still be authentic next week or in two weeks on the pod i welcome back my all-time top listen to guest Margot gooley Margot is a director at the humphrey group of uh, program development you likely in listening to this podcast have listened to her talk about storytelling early on in season one it's uh the most listened to episode that we've ever done and uh, i had to have her back because leadership has changed in the 20 years I've been in the Humphrey Group and so too is what it means to inspire. And we at the Humphrey Group have been actively engaged over the last couple of years reflecting on what leaders must do to inspire today, what skills they need and the role that we can play. And so Margot comes on to have that conversation with me where I talk about my own experiences in the business world, seeing how leadership communication has evolved and then turning it over to her as the next generation to talk about what leaders today must do to be inspirational and what we've decided as a company we can do to help them. So look forward to having you on for that conversation.